Hey everyone, welcome to Required Reading. This week we are reading and talking about The Sparrow. Now, The Sparrow is a science fiction book, but I, in the podcast, argue it's more of a philosophical book akin to a Thomas More utopia. Regardless, it is sci-fi, it is history, it is fantasy, it is Jesuit priests. Uh, we all kind of enjoyed this book. I hadn't heard of it, even though it's approaching rapidly. It's 30th anniversary, uh, but uh, we hope you enjoy. Thanks for reading. Thanks for sharing. Oh, and by the way, I didn't mention this. I have been promising that I would tell you what's coming up next. So for the month of October, we're going to do a horror classic, followed by a modern interpretation of it. So the first book in October is going to be Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, and we're going to follow that closer to actual Halloween. Uh, with Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton, in honor of the movie, of course, and in honor of, well, one of my favorites. So, thanks for everything you do, thanks for sharing, and bye. Welcome to Required Reading. Uh, this episode, we're talking The Sparrow, um, 1996 novel by Mary Doria Russell. I want to make sure I get her name right. I kept getting it well done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, a science fiction uh, novel uh, with a title referring to the Gospel of Mark, or Matthew, excuse me, so you know already where we're coming from. Uh, it is about Jesuits in space. Uh, so there you have it. Uh, I'm your host, Nick Hoffman, and with me is my co-host. Mike Burns, welcome. Mike Carroll. And we have uh, a guest who, well, we weren't necessarily planning a guest per se, but she heard us talking about it and wanted to be on the show. So we have, returning to the show... Betsy Holcomb. And so, yeah, um, when we, the way we do this every year is Mike and I sit down at a restaurant and kind of hash out what books we want to do, what we don't want to do, how we want to structure this. And this came out right away. Mike said, we're going to do The Sparrow this season. And Mike Carroll and I hadn't heard of it, really. Right. Uh, and so, you know, throwing caution to the wind, we put our trust in Mike. And uh, so how did you come across this? And it's, I'm really vague on how I heard of it, but it's been a couple of years because I remember um, – I was reading it or, or got it as a possible ad for uh, American Lit. Like most things, I'm trying to think about what's going to be good to add to the class. And so I bought a copy of the used bookstore, and it sat on my shelf for a while. And then actually, Betsy, when you did our last podcast together, we did Flannery O'Connor, we were talking, or you put in an email or something, like The Sparrow was one of your favorite books or one you wanted to talk about. And so that, like, oh, I need to dig that out. I have that book. Um, so I sort of knew of it. I don't know where I heard of it originally, but then – was sort of nudged to read it. And then the first week of this summer, um, I had COVID. So, it, you know, it's very mild, nothing else to do but sit around and read and binge watch stuff. And so I burned through this and thought it was awesome. So we had our meeting shortly after that. And I was pretty much, um, I was psyched about it. So I wanted to talk to people about it. So, yeah, yeah Mike, I, di I didn't realize that it had been so recent that you had read it for the first time. We were talking right before the, before the podcast started that, this is a uh, it's it's older than I realized, and I didn't realize that uh, that it had been so recent that you had actually read it for the first time. Mike, right. that's really cool. Yeah, Betsy, how about you? Yeah, so um, 
I started here at Marist in 2020, 2021, and we were all masked then, and I was brand new, and I very much want community wherever I, <laughs> where I work, and so I was started, I started to say, like, okay, if I could, you could, if I could read one book, you could recommend one, what would it be? And you recommended, do you remember what you recommended, Mike? Things that carry? Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Which I still haven't read yet, but I will. Oh, jeez, okay. Have you all talked about that? <laughs> we have. We have. Uh, on the podcast. Yeah. Oh, with Dave Negus. Yeah. Oh, nice. Okay. And so, uh, so... I truly three or four people recommended the Sparrow wow. by like the third person. I was like, okay, I'm doing it right now. I'm getting, you know, the audiobook. I'm getting, you know, the hard copy. And so, um, yeah, I just, and it quickly rose to the top for me too. of My favorite books. I mean, it's, especially as I was getting ready for this conversation, there's so many episodes to talk about that happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it doesn't feel like it's written like a collection of short stories put together, but there are these, I mean, the epic, kind of sections that I just, I, I'm really excited yeah. to talk about today. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, um, so uh, since Mike, uh, Carol, and I are coming to it relatively young, we'll throw it to you guys to lead the discussion. Um, but just for those of you, kind of we've been doing a, a basic structural analysis this season of how these books work. Um, none of us have taught it yet, so we can't appeal to that side of it. But I can tell you it's a science fiction, non-traditional narrative, um, it's pretty, quote-unquote, hard science fiction, where there's not, like, magical space weapons. Right. Uh, but at the same time, there are there's an alien encounter bit of this. And so it kind of floats between being Carl Sagan's Contact, uh, Stranger in a Strange Land by Heinlein, but told in a structure akin to a Slaughterhouse-Five, where there's a non-traditional narrative, and you're trying to figure out what precisely happened. Um the kind of, I guess, Catholic angle, since Betsy's on, is the expedition to space is led by a team uh, funded and partially controlled by the Jesuits, uh, which in some ways, as a historian, I can tell you, makes sense. They even get into this a little bit, that a lot of the 16th and 17th century exploration was done by the Jesuits because they were trained in cultural studies and language studies and they were linguists and they could kind of develop a language and frankly a lot of the written history we have for Southeast Asia and the Native Americans at first comes to us from the Jesuits. Um, but that's kind of where we jump off into the actual construction of the novel itself. And we should say, too, that Betsy is joining us from the theology department. That's so right. Those of you that Very interdisciplinary to our, on this podcast. Yeah. Wise like Blood <laughs> episode. Go back and listen to Wise Blood, too. That's a great, great conversation we had. We had. And uh, Macbeth, too. And Macbeth, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll hand you the reins. How do you want to start uh, this discussion off? Because I think technically we start at the end. Uh, of the novel, right? And then we're kind of brought back and forth constantly. The The book takes place between 2060 and 2006? 19. 2019. 2019. Yeah. 2019. Yeah. So, you know, the very recent past. Yeah. Um, and the book was written in 1996, so she's still jumping forward a bit, but, you know, not crazy. So, I don't... Betsy, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, you're dropped into this world where you're given dates uh, at the beginning of the chapter, you're jumping back and forth between 2059, 2060, and then 2019. Um, early on, we meet Emilio Sandoz, our uh, mm-hmm. main character, um, who um, I, I mentioned, I wanted to mention this. I don't think we talked about it when we talked about either um, Wiseblood or Macbeth, but I think it's relevant here. Um, about 10 years ago, I was at a conference uh, and they, they gave me something. It was new for me, super eager to hear what you think, but a, a different way of defining tragedy and comedy. And that uh, the way they defined it is a comedy is a narrative where characters don't change 
and a tragedy is a, uh, a narrative where characters do change, um, where there's evolving happening. And I can tell you're thinking about it, and I can tell you're <laughs> criticizing it, and I love that, and I'm here for any uh, criticism, and hopefully I'm getting the reference right. But I think when we're talking about this novel, there are comedic moments to it in terms of some of the banter that happens between the characters that I love. It's actually one of my favorite parts of the novel. Um, I don't know that I can think of a novel that does as good of a job of capturing what it's like to have playful banter, especially because like with Anne and Amelia, you've got like, you know, a a lay woman who's married and she's older and I think that she and her husband are kind of like, mm, they say the thing, maybe they're anti-faith and then they become really close with this priest and just kind of see the playfulness in that relationship, I find very fun. But I wanted to mention the tragedy and the comedy thing because I think with Emilio Sandoz, and seeing his arc over the course of the novel, I think we really, I mean, it's its almost too big for words. It's like this, we think we see where he's going in a certain direction, yeah. and then, but we also are seeing him on the back end of all the trauma, and we don't even know what that trauma is until the very end. Right. I, I just love yeah. kind of his arc. Yeah, I think that it, it's really interesting that you're bringing up comedy and tragedy in that way because I think that th- there were moments especially earlier on with some of the some of like the dinner conversations and the like the banter between Jimmy and Anne that I was laughing out loud. I thought it was so funny. But then there are certainly the aspects of tragedy with the uh, with Amelia's story that that really just pulls at your heartstrings. So I think both are present there in, in the novel in really profound ways. So uh, yeah, I can't wait to get into it. Yeah. And so we meet Emilio Sandoz, this priest who we learn is a linguist. Um, we um, also are meeting some other priests. So as we're seeing him in 2060, he's come back to earth after we're not quite sure what has happened, but something really bad has happened to this priest and he's very frail um he emotionally frail but physically frail i mean the descriptions even of his hands are really hard to read at times Mm -hmm. i mean to to see the physical wounds uh, on our main character and then we're kind of uh we jump around so we get to meet a guy named jimmy who Mm -hmm. is um younger and um maybe a little less serious than kind of these conversations between the priests um and then uh, i'm a little biased about Anne. i think Anne um and her husband are um just really compelling characters i want to be i want to know her i want her to invite me over to dinner. I want to be at one of those dinner parties, yes. right? and they're at yeah. these dinner parties, and she's very, um, you know, okay, so here's, right before I came in here, uh, the, one of the people who recommended the novel to me, I said, what What do you like about the novel? And he said, you know, for, for a, a novel that's about Jesuits in space, it's a, the author did such a great job of um, humanizing its characters. So they're sure. also, like, full of depth and, and and we're empathetic towards them and um and so I just I really love the the human dynamic to the novel too we we're, we've got a foot in both worlds um hop in what are you thinking no I agree the the humanizing the priest so you know oh yeah being a cradle Catholic and growing up but then working in schools uh with priests um, it's a very different you, – you see them as humans, and so to see that in the novel I think is satisfying in a way um, to make them fully rounded characters. Um, and I think we need to say too that uh, Russell, um, I believe, was an anthropologist or studied anthropology, wow. so um, doesn't come up from a like creative writing standpoint, but you can see that in how she – 
crafts these characters or creates this sense that she gets people, I think is pretty clear. And, and they are very appealing. You want to hang out with these people. Uh, you want to go on this expedition with yeah. them and, yeah. and go into space with them. Um, I love that you mentioned that she's an anthropologist because I am, I think about a lot, the beautiful section of the novel finally. So we end up through a couple different, you know, things happen. We, we, they, Jimmy hears um, music, uh, in space and then some Jesuits come together with Jimmy and Anne and, and what is Anne's husband's name? Uh, okay, I, I could just call her Anne's husband if someone's not gonna George. George, very George. good. Yeah. And then they all go on this expedition. Um and then and, and that's that's challenging too, right? I think one of the cool things is this um cramped time that they have together when they're yeah. going to space and the jokes about Anne and George going off to like have sex because they're right. a married couple and having the priests around and, and just all the different personalities are really great. Oh, yeah. But then when they land and that whole section, when they finally get to where they're, where they think they're going um, and the observations that they're making. So we're, we're from this like completely blind. Ex- she does such a great job of, of writing the, pers- the, the text from this perspective of just observation, you know, trying to discover through clues, th- linguistic clues, cultural clues, and the confusion yeah. when you en- or get dropped into a world that's completely uh-huh. different. That part of the novel is just its own kind of little novella, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just really cool. Yeah, to the point where I wanted more of that world. Yep. Or, I mean, and I don't know if we'll talk about the ending or go there, but um, yeah, it was just so fascinating to explore it with the characters as they are they're exploring it yeah yeah i want to say just the historian in me wants to talk about when this book comes out and how they Mm. sculpt this world uh the book is 96 uh but 1992 of course is the 500th anniversary of columbus landing in the new world Mm. and the same year that they start seti which becomes a character in this uh search for extraterrestrial intelligence um in puerto rico they have the world's biggest uh satellite dish which was used to listen to uh, radio signals coming in from outer space and if you want to make a few bucks a month even you can still install the SETI screensaver because there's so much data that they get that they use other people's computers in idle time to break down the analysis oh, really? so you can download the SETI at home app and just wow. figure that out but it's just it all com- like it makes sense that this novel came out a few years after that and in some ways it's an exploration narrative like you could have just I mean, you could have switched it around, and I mean, this is the Marist school. Wrote, wrote about Chanel, right? Who had his own brutal end at the end of the, his life, but like that's what this is about. It's an exploration narrative led by the Catholic missionaries. It fits, you know. Yeah. Um, the dif- the difference is to related to us. It's in a galaxy far, far away, um, and it has to do with with music. Um, but yeah, no, no, no. It's interesting. Uh, we we also I should mention um, Betsy of course talked us through the plot a little bit. We don't get all of that right away. Like they don't leave on the mission until roughly halfway through the book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but we already have him back, so we know he makes it. But we don't know much else other than everyone has died except for him, and he doesn't want to talk to the press. Something traumatic has happened, and yeah. the Jesuit authorities are mad at him clearly, mm-hmm. and so that, yeah, and that's I, a mystery. I think it, it's roughly around that same time, like about halfway through, maybe a little bit more, where you get the report. It, it's like shortly after they land that finally you get the report in the 1960 Earth planet world that that kind of like runs down. So this is what happened when we when you were discovered on this planet by the second like 
ship that ended up departing from Earth and uh, and and going on this travel. This is what happened, and the his response, Emilio's response, is that that's all correct and it's also all not true. <laughs> and the the it's kind of like that that list of all of the things that seem as though a priest should never be in this situation. These are all the things that are being held against you. And then you get the truth behind that by the end of the novel. Um, and it's, and, and he's right. Everything that's on that list of, of essentially accusations that are being, uh, that are being held against him, they're all true. And at the same time, there's, there's an explanation and a world behind how it is that he ended up in that situation as well. Yeah, I think one of the things that's so cool about Emilio um, and, and some of the other Jesuits that are on the mission is how, as we talked about, how human they are. And then maybe as a contrast to that like empathy we feel and how like complex we see these characters as, because they're not just, um, I don't know, guys and callers who do their prayers there i mean we're talking about emilio having sexual desires and and romantic oh, feelings for yeah. people and so we we see this like layered layeredness to these people but i think um is it is it possible to contrast kind of the the humanness of these jesuits that go to space with the jesuits that are not uh, able to practice the empathy and hear uh, or they're, they're on the journey of understanding his story maybe yeah. uh, I, I'm, I'm eager to hear what your thoughts are I'm not sure that I've fully well we should it out yet. we should couple that with the early juxtaposition which is um, you mentioned he's you know not only had this physical but emotional trauma but he gets a series of other Jesuits and stuff who are helping him kind mm. of but they when they're talking about him without him there they talk about him at first as having almost like faith worthy of canonization mm-hmm. and now he is you know angry at god i don't know if we would put him as agnostic or not because he in some ways he believes god exists he's just furious with him um which is such a contrast to yeah. when they're on this new planet and he's having mystical experiences right. yeah it's when he first steps off of the oh. like asteroid spacecraft so yeah. to speak he has like this really almost like epiphany type mm-hmm. of a moment where he like talks about seeing god and then you contrast that with kind of the i don't know if you want to call it even a fall but just kind of that that struggle with faith that ends up coming at the end of the story yeah yeah i mean Deep suffering and- Oh, sorry. No. I was going to say, and again, this is a sci-fi book, and, and we'll get into it, but every step of this feels like it could just be she read a narrative of a Jesuit in, say, Southeast Asia and then put it in the modern context. Because mm-hmm. there's even, you mentioned um, his scarring, but, like, that could be analogous to foot binding in China. Right. You know, mm-hmm. like, and, and so so th- there's, there's steps made to re- make this very relatable to mm-hmm. the experience of these people 500 years ago. Uh, which I think is fascinating. Um, I I do want to add just one more thing. I think I really appreciate us contextualizing what the Jesuits have done in um, um, history. But I think um, another coworker, I'm just realizing, described this as being one of the best novels to um, uh, portray Jesuit spirituality. So Jesuits are a specific kind of order of priests, and they have a really robust spiritual... Uh, the, the, uh, the uh, spirituality that um, is about um, reaching out to bring the gospel, bring Jesus's message to people who may not have heard it. Um, but I also love that we get a lot of fraternity here. We're seeing lots of fraternal like commitments to helping each other um, heal or you know like helping each other just be um, in this this 
priesthood together. So I think that's really fascinating too, um, to see the different kinds of communities that show up. And part of that is is for sure the Jesuit. I, I'm fascinated to know what Mary Doria Russell's experience with Jesuit spirituality was, but I think she does such a beautiful job of, of yeah. portraying that. Yeah, I don't know. That's a great question. I haven't done much uh, sort of biography research on her if any of you a little bit i mean i know she's not actually a catholic ah, that's interesting. interesting um but you know she's an anthropologist who wrote this and you know when you write something like i mean doesn't she in there predict that the pope would be a jesuit and ah. like yeah. by 2019 when the book is set we have a pope ah, who's a jesuit yeah, for nice. the first time a prophetic voice um what i like about it and i, I like sci-fi but it isn't jargony or it's not a lot of world building like you can jump in immediately and there's not like talking about you know phasers and photons and strange technology mm-hmm. it seems very relevant um to our lives today yeah. yeah and i think that part of the reason for that is because it's it's yes it's to and i know we kind of alluded to this already but yes it's Sorry. taking place on in parts on a different planet but it might as well be taking place on earth in just a different society mm-hmm. uh and the society that that she creates is really really interesting to me mm-hmm. um but the but that society it, it yes is taking place on another planet but it might as well not be because there's so there's so much hierarchy that is built into that society that it could just very well have been emilio going to a a, a different back in the uh, in the 1500s or 1600s, just going to a different continent or going to a different world and experiencing a very human, but a very different hierarchical society and the the struggles that go into um, that go into bringing God to those different societies. You can see that in the struggle in which he's bringing God to a different planet. And I think that part of that is in that shared humanity, both with humans and then also with the the other uh, races that are uh, that are encountered. Because doesn't Emilio kind of befriend this little child who becomes his uh, uh, little mid? You know, they're they're But you know, there's there's different approaches of doing this, bringing God to cultures that may not know God, and I I think she captures the Jesuit spirit that's already been alluded to of not just bulldozing through and saying, here's my language for these things, but his empathy and his practice of deeply embedding himself in this new culture, I think is just stunning. I mean, it's, it's very compelling, I think, to see someone yeah. be so curious, endlessly curious about what's going on. I also love the danger. Do y'all remember they find, they get to the island or they get to the planet and they're like, well, we can't eat anything. We're yeah. gonna. Uh, we don't Somebody know what's poisonous. Dies, right? Yeah. Yeah. Inexplicably, very early on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and just to watch that slowly kind of happen, but then we they they're there and they 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 form these relationships. They start to learn the culture. We, I think, as a reader, I got comfortable. I thought, okay, oh, absolutely. How cool. You know, they're they're they know people. People know them. They're learning some of the language and um and then. We get more tragedy and we oh. get death and we, you know, I was sort of slapped in the face by the the, the deaths because yeah. it's Anne and, or is it multiple people that that die from like an attack, yeah, right? And so to have um, that uh, be a big reminder of the danger and the the, the delicacy of this whole endeavor. This, the, I don't know that I I realized when they were getting ready to go. I don't know that I was thinking, but probably they were thinking about. 
we're, we may not Never survive this. Back. This yeah. is yeah. it. You know, this is a choice that could be the defining yeah. end to our lives, which is is wild. That's something that bothered. I don't want to say bothered me. I like this novel plenty, but it would be a criticism I would have. It would almost be more interesting with them starting on the planet and then having it cut around because we know someone survives because that's the first third of the book. Um, and so it just, I guess it depends on what Russell wants the mystery to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because, I, and again, I, I, I have no, no criticism of the book. I'm just thinking if I were writing it, how I would structure it. Because you're right, I think that is the kind of fun mystery. But the, the way that the book is structured then, we know that he's the only one who survives. But everyone else who dies, dies in the last, like, 25% of the book. Mm-hmm. Because of the structure, they have to cram all that together. Mm-hmm. I think it would be interesting if we sat with the mystery of what killed that first guy mm-hmm. for a little bit longer, because mm-hmm. we really don't know, and there seems to be something affecting some of the other people, and we don't really have time to get to that mystery, because then they start killing off people pretty quickly. Um, but how do you want to talk about this book? Because mm-hmm. kind of the end of it is the middle of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I don't what know, do you it, mean? It, Say, what, what do you, the end of it is the middle of it? Because we finally what hap, figured out what happens to him to cause the trauma that starts the book out at the very end of the book. Mm. Um, and that trauma, you know, we'll just figure out when we get there. It's kind of the twist of the book. But if this book is about anything, it's about a crisis of faith. Right? Mm. How can you be this person? I mean, Father Sandoz is described as being Puerto Rican. But he defines himself as being part conquistador and part Tiano. Um, So he has that within him, which is, on one hand, what leads to his compassion, his incredible faith. Um, And being bobbed around like a ping pong ball, as though he's the most popular person wherever he is, so they want to get rid of him. So to have that broken out of him is the drama. But that's broken out of him at the very end by the head of his order. So that makes it kind of difficult to talk about. Without giving away the ghost, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I don't know how to answer your question about yeah. how do we talk about this novel, uh, but I want to talk about it. And sure. I, I, you know, something that um, I find really compelling is it is a, a a novel about people of faith that's very relatable. So faith is not uh, a solid, you know, 100% all the time, you know, a, a whole, you know holding on to something concrete it can it has i think ought to have lots of growth and and depth to it and complexity yeah. to it and i yeah. to, to to have an author portray faith in the way that she does and all the different kinds of faith of all the different characters i think is pretty profound it's yeah it's it's realistic and i think that a lot of times for a sci-fi novel yeah. about space yeah, yeah. I love yeah. about jesuits in space yeah. right but i think that a lot of times like to we're, we're talking about this uh the the protagonist emilio uh father emilio sandos being a lot of times, especially one that's that's like worthy of canonization, you would think reading this story about that type of a man of faith that there would never be any moments that somebody like that would question their faith. Mm-hmm. And so it can be intimidating in, in, in some moments to think, well, it, if that's what having faith looks like is being that steadfast and never questioning your faith, it's a, it, that's not a reasonable expectation for what faith looks like. And I think that she does such an amazing job of, of portraying a realistic version of faith that Emilio does not have all of the answers and he, and he struggles very deeply with his faith 
up to the point that were it not for the last couple of pages, you might think that this is just an outright tragedy where there is no call for redemption and there is no and there's no regaining of faith at the end of the novel. But the the, the last couple of pages, and I'm interesting to, to I'm interested to hear what it is that you think about the last couple of pages. But I think that it's a it's a realistic view of faith, and it's a re, it's it's a view of faith that I think is approachable, and it doesn't uh, it doesn't make at least me feel like like having faith is this all or nothing type of a thing mm-hmm. right and, and i don't know about you guys but that's that's kind of the, the feeling that i was getting as i was going through it is that like wow for the first time i'm getting a, a a description here of a priest who does not have what you would call perfect faith uh and seeing an imperfect priest in this way was really interesting yeah he's full of doubt right yeah i mean sort of doubt defines him i would say being the flip side being the faith so he doubts like his relationships or his ability like he's a very attractive charming man right yeah. so everyone sort of wants to be him or have a part of him and yet there's this calling to be separate as a priest or to separate himself from the things that bring him comfort for example and that that sort of push and pull i think is very realistic and, and yeah. interesting um i'm thinking too of sort of the theme of of um like the character Sophia, I wonder what you guys think about her. Sophia Mendes. Yeah, we haven't talked about her. You're exactly yeah. right. Um, so she's sort of in the beginning. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but she's sort of a um, she's assigned to interview people, almost like a building an AI program to make yes. people's jobs obsolete, which is very relevant to us today too. And she's almost robotic in how she approaches yeah. things, but then she her arc she becomes more humanized over the story. Um, so I wonder if Russell's saying something about that and humanity through that character. Or, I don't know. Well, I just found her fascinating. Well, and the sexual desire between right. Emilio, Father Emilio and, right. and her. And, um, and, but I, I'm fascinated. You know, I love this intersection between faith and literature, faith and art. But I think, you know, the best art that's made that has faith in it is one that's not trying to prove to us how great faith is. Mm. And I, I don't think she's trying to prove to us how right. great or convert us, right? right. But and while well, she's not a Catholic, I guess there's not at all. But but I, to get a snapshot and a window into this really these really compelling characters, can you? Is she? Is Mar, it's Maria? Maria. Yeah, Ma- Mary. Oh. Mary Doria. No, no, no. Russell. Mary Doria Sophia Mendes. Ma- oh, Sophia, Sophia Mendes. Is she a slave of some kind? Of yeah, her? essentially, like a yeah. corporate slave. Yeah. That's yeah. weird. That, well, that is in, in her thing. backstory too. Yeah. <laughs> that it's is like one cultural... part of this book that does not hold up. Uh, in 2019, we have slaves. Um, so, yeah. So she was in a war-torn part of the world, and essentially, like working the streets, and then this guy finds her. And like, kind of bails her out and sends her to college in exchange for her labor for mm-hmm. the foreseeable future, like indentured mm-hmm. servitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. pretty much. Yeah, uh, she herself is, I believe, Turkish Jewish. The, the Jewish part comes up later, especially. Uh, but yeah, she's essentially trying to replace Sandoz with a computer, um, and has intentionally re- like removed herself from human contact because of this. Um, but that beguiling Jimmy is going to show up later on. Yeah. yeah. Um, I love Jimmy. I love Jimmy too. <laughs> well, he's the wet we, behind the ears, he's like the goofy yeah. Yeah. you know, 
Feed awkward around big, ladies. Right? Yes. Yeah. Um, also, just if you're listening to this and you like this book, I apologize in advance for mispronouncing things that are, you know, made up alien words. I, I <laughs> if you pronounce it, mine, yeah. I'm going to say Rakat. Ah, uh, but if I, yeah. but if you say it differently, you're probably right. I am not a Jesuit linguist, <laughs> um, so I'll do the best I can. Um, some of these things have too many A's in a row or Q's in a row, and I'll do my best. Um, but Jimmy is the one who is working for Arecibo for another position that might be replaced by AI, right? right. Um, when he hears a repeating signal, uh, this is a reference uh, to the wow signal discovered by Ohio State University, hmm. uh, which is listening to SETI or a SETI-like program. There's a symbol off the charts that seems to repeat, and we haven't heard it, though there was, again, but in 2018 or 2019, there was a similar signal in the same area again. But that's, that's what it is. We're trying to replace it, and Jimmy says it sounds like music. So after leaving Laura's uh, dinner party, the dinner party, mm-hmm. uh, where he awkwardly tries to hit <laughs> Sophia, mm-hmm. uh, he rushes back and says, we found it. Um, now, if we're talking about turning this into... I mean, if we could see it turning into a movie, this this scene where they're listening to, I mean, that's a pivotal. This is a, it's a the breakthrough. A, yeah, it's huge. I mean, yeah. and then to to have them all hear it, and then to start to consider what they're going to do. Yeah. So that that was one of the most intriguing and fascinating parts of the story to me because mm-hmm. at this point, as you're reading through it, you don't know what it is. You you do know what ends up happening because you're you're privy to that information of what it is that's taking place in in 2060 but the at the time correct me if i'm wrong maybe maybe i'm wrong about this but i thought that jimmy heard it listening with sophia earlier on and then it wasn't until it wasn't until later on and and so that they listened to it and they were like well a lot of times we get this the music from the surrounding churches that ends up kind of amplifying off of the buildings that are nearby that's probably nothing and then it kind of like sticks in his in his head kind of like an earworm he can't quite get rid of it he goes to the to the dinner party at at um Anne's, and the description of the symphonic music between uh, between Emilio and Sophia singing with one another is breathtaking. Mm-hmm. I, I love that description, and it's so much so like the it's one of those moments where you can't for for Jimmy he can't quite put his thumb on why, but he he like he knows that there's this romance that there's this tension that there's this I'd go so far as to say love between mm-hmm. Emilio and uh, and Sophia and as a result of that uh, he he leaves that party being like I've got no chance and ends up crying in Anne's arms because yeah. he's like I've fallen for Sophia and I have no chance just look at the way that Emilio and her are are. T- talking with one another and then he goes back to the station and he's and he's re-listening to it and that's when it clicks for him is that the the song and not specifically that song but the 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 way that that song was coming across in that beautiful symphonic i would go so far as to say like godlike mm-hmm. uh music that he was listening to at that party that's the chord that's no pun intended that's the chord that struck with him that that kind of made him realize that oh my gosh this is music that we're listening to mm-hmm. and that totally transforms everything that comes afterwards into the into the the mission and everything that comes afterwards but 
I think it's interesting that that again, correct me if I'm wrong. It, it's been it's been a couple of months since since I was uh, since since I had read it. But the Jimmy doesn't want for Anne to say that it was that song, that it was their music and mm-hmm. their romance that like made it click because he's embarrassed about it. Yeah. Um, and I just I love those those dinner scenes and that one in particular because you get so much raw humanity yep. in that in in kind of that that dinner party and that song and then everything that comes afterwards. And then it's almost comical how quickly it turns to from like this is possible that this other planet exists. How awesome is this discovery to? We're actually going to try and going, go there. Let's do this. You know, and that happens so fast. This. Yeah, it does happen fast. Well, and there's also a part of it, too, which is um, when they first hear the signal and he's not sure if it's yada, 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 there were tests that he could run, but there's this intuition thing, right? This idea that what's better, a human or a machine, which hmm. runs throughout the whole thing, right. which, again, hmm. I'm not trying to make her seem like a fortune teller or something, but this is 2019. And you remember how they were all convinced they could replace teachers with a universal teacher or some sort of virtual. And then COVID hit, and we realized how that's nonsense. There's something about humanity interacting with humanity that works. And it's just so funny that that's kind of what's challenging Sophia this whole time, because she's supposed to be replacing everyone around her with computers. Um, although at the end, she's the only reason he makes it home. So we'll get there. That um, really, uh, so well said. And I keep coming back to this question. And I don't know if you meant this question, like, kind of just let's have a conversation, like inviting us to it. But I, uh, but I, I love this question of how do we talk about this novel? And it makes, I think, my, currently, and maybe this is my bias based on my preferences or my background educationally, but this novel's about love. And it's about I mean, think of all the different characters that express love. You've got Emilio and the child who, you know, well, God, I mean, that that potentially, there's all these moments where it could be salacious, where it could turn like, mm-hmm. oh, let's make it scandalous, right? We've got a priest interacting with a child. They're alone all the time. They're attached at the hip. You've got a lay woman who's married. You've got Jimmy, the young guy, and and, and you, all these different combinations of people. And, you know, the... And, uh, Captain Jesuit, who's gay. And the Captain Jesuit. Yeah. D.W. Gay. Oh, I D-W. love D.W. From oh, Texas, so right? Yeah. I forgot about him. Yeah. Lovely. <laughs> he's, 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 he'd be a fun one just to play, because he's big and blustery. And, right. And the Texan, he's all, right? Yeah. But not a cartoon, right? Yeah. Not a foghorn leghorn type, yeah. you know, like really... Uh, we get that, that great interaction, I think, between he and Anne. It is between Where they're talking yeah. about his... I know, Anne, who brings <laughs> this out in people, um, even Jesuit priests. And so I, I, the novel for me is about the love and relationships, you know, even though it's Jesuits in space. Which you would expect from an anthropologist, right? It's all yeah. about the relationships and, the, and yeah. the bonds that this society, even on a micro level, with the people on the ship or on Rock Hot... Um, form, right? Um, yeah. So it makes sense. Well, and then just to, to Mike's point, um, it's very clear when you read this and think about it, it's written by an anthropologist, not a theology person, not a historian, not even a someone who writes a lot of sci-fi per se, although she has gone on to write sequels to this book. Uh, but it's very much structurally. How do you interact with a culture? And and time and time again, Sandoz, uh, we'll get to it, but there's two races on the planet. Um, one is a predator and one is prey, and he explains that, and the Jesuits are shocked, nay, shocked. But he's like, look, man, this is their culture. Like, <laughs> I'm telling you how it is, not whether or not to judge it. We're just trying to get to the bottom of what on earth happened, or yeah. what in space happened. Um, <laughs> oh, 
Um, anyway, so uh, the, the the first movement of this is we're getting backgrounds a little bit on all these characters. We get to a dinner party. They discover this signal, and then the Jesuits start doing some Dan Brown stuff and just selling art to fund a space expedition. This is <laughs> aluminum hat. <laughs> this is great conspiracy <laughs> That's so stuff. Quick. That didn't bother me. Oh, no, it, it doesn't yeah. bother me. It was just fun. Yeah, literally yeah. a vehicle to get, it, quite get the literally, vehicle. Quite yeah. literally, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so. I, I think the sentence is literally that if like they had Jesuits watching the newspapers to see if anyone picked up that there was all this art that was suddenly available on the market. It's 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 fun. Um, Again, another example of like how easy it would be to paint these characters as people of faith who have ulterior motives or you know conspiracy theories. You know, you mentioned Dan Brown, and so I think it's fascinating that she kind of threads that needle for me of of portraying these people in a human way. Yeah, um, we develop a spaceship um, on a uh, kind of mined asteroid satellite, satellite of some sort. It's, it's a rock in space that they have built out internally to be a long-term capsule. They have the ability to go nearly the speed of light, which causes time to fold in on itself using mm -hmm. Einstein's, Einstein's special relativity. So minutes in space becomes hours on Earth, and eventually, even though it feels like they're only gone for a few years, they've, they're, uh, he returns like 41 years later? Sounds right, yep. Um, and so the book is kind of broken up. The, the His part takes place over years and it's after he, or over months after he's returned. The rest of the book is pr about five year cycle in their time, figuring it out, getting to space, going to the planet, and then spending a few months on the planet before his uh, indenture for mm -hmm. several years, before he's rescued by the United Nations. Which is a sentence I said. Um, yeah. Um, we also find out in the now time, in 2060, that the United Nations has been misperching the mission uh, based on a report that came out while he was gone. And so opinion has turned against the Jesuits. Uh, and that's why they really want him to tell his side of the story, because they have like a 30-year head start on this narrative. Um, and subsequently they send their own mission, which we find out about halfway through the novel. Right. So, uh, we're on a planet, I guess. I mean, because the stuff in space is a lot of the character development. Yeah. Not saying that we, we don't need to focus on it, but that, that's where we get all those relationships we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes. The part in actual space is how we, we, we see... You know, Jimmy and Sophia start to meet, and they have this kind of weird tension throughout the ship, and it's it, it's good. It's 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 world building. It is, and I um I don't know if y'all read Station Eleven or seen the show. Saw Station the show. 11. I love the show. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen the show, but the the novel I read, and then I heard the show was great, so I was like, okay, I'm gonna read it. And then, but there's this part in Station Eleven which is post-apocalyptic. There's this part where and it's this traveling um, Shakespearean performance group, and um and there's this beautiful part of the novel where it talks about um, how even though, you know, they, they're free from all, you know, like societal whatever expectations and stuff, but essentially how like hell is other people yeah. uh, and how like they're still kind of miserable just in their interactions daily with each other. But it reminds me a little bit of the time on the spaceship and we get that tension that we have between people when they're in a group together, even the best of friends, when they're all cooped up together, there's some real um, frustration that happens there too, which again, you know, is another layer to that, the real uh, 
experience of, of reading the novel. Well, and it, it's very realistic. In some ways, I mean, Alien is a different movie, but like the part early on that's important is them building up these relationships. And of course, they're sitting around the mess hall just kind of, you know, jerking around and playing like and and making snide comments because if you were lazy and you were writing bad science fiction, they would all be so golly gee whiz, we're going to this mm-hmm. new planet. But that's not realistic. After mm-hmm. month three, you're just like, man, I hate your spaghetti. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, you know, and, and that makes it more human. And it, it's important that we're emphasizing that we are human here because we're about to come across an alien species. Right. And so what makes us distinct? Well, again, 500 years before, it's we are Spanish, they are Teano. It's the Jesuits in Southeast Asia. It's Captain Cook being made into a sandwich. Like, there, there, there's a certain amount of cultural relationships that they either get or they don't. And so we have to have these people care about each other because otherwise, why would we be at all interested? Mm-hmm. And she does a really good job of creating these, these relationships um, in the story. I really like it um, when they're, we talked about it a little bit before, but when they really are getting to know the, the culture um, on this new planet, uh, and they're, it, it's sort of holding up a mirror to our own anthropological choices that we make as a society and culture, and there's lots of diversity in there too, but mm-hmm. you know, to, to hear that this culture is looking at the, the aliens who've arrived on their planet as weird because they have alone time. And yeah. they have time apart from each other, whereas, like, it's so natural for them to be, like, clustered up mm-hmm. at all times, no separation. Um, I, I loved kind of that, the, the the differences there between the different cultures, the observations, but also holding up a mirror to, to what we do, you know, it's really cool. Right. And I love, too, just as a gardener, the fact that they oh, grow yeah. stuff or just their presence there is going, has ripple effects that you might not consider. So they're just by being there, have, making that contact is going to change everything mm-hmm. in, in ways that they don't anticipate and lead to trouble uh, later on. Right. But, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's just the meeting of the two cultures or, or two groups. And so um, things go pretty well for a little, well, yeah. we, we lose someone early on yeah. to eating, right? It's like mm-hmm. a, a po- like poisoned. And then things are kind of cool for a while where they're observing and they're getting to know. And Oh, how about the scene? Is it when they first meet the rock hop people? And they, they're like all coming back. Remember, there's like no one in the, they they enter into their like place they oh, live, yeah. and there's yeah, no yeah, one yeah. there, it and they're all like yeah. coming back in a procession. <gasps> and then Amelia like makes contact with them. Yeah. What a cool moment! Mm-hmm. Such a cool spot in the in the novel. And then, uh, you know, they they've got these interactions which are really fascinating. They befriend each other, and then, or to befriend each other to a certain extent. But then we we lose. We lose Anne, and we, we lose some characters, and um, and then I'll be honest with you, I get I get a little confused at the 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 setup for what happens to Father Sanders. Yeah. So. Oh, after everyone else is, uh-huh. and he's the only one left. Uh-huh. Well, there's yeah. two left. That's true. I, I, and then one dies in captivity. Um, so they're there presumably at first for months in in the wilderness, like. I don't know. I, for some reason, when I pictured it, I pictured it like Nevada or something. Like it's desolate, but survivable. And then we come across the Runa first, and yes. the Runa are—they don't have an idea of possession. And he explains that when they leave the house, uh, if someone else moves in, it's fine because it's kind of communal. Mm-hmm. This is where he makes a relationship with a young child. Mm-hmm. And he starts to learn their language, but fairly quickly he realizes that whatever the singing was, it wasn't from these people. Ah, uh, man. Right. Which, okay. And yeah. he, just, he, it's, he, disa- he, it's disappointing, right? Well, he's disappointed. He's like, I spent all this time, man. Yeah. 
Right. <laughs> it's not even the right but, spot. Yeah, there's yet another culture, right? Right. And so they meet the traitor. Um, that's the yeah, no, I, 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 I don't know. No, please it's, it's no. Jan, Janada or something. Yeah, Jaada. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Jaada. I think. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry. Um, Janada, whatever. Uh, Janata. There, there's a there's a there's, an there's a hyphen in there. Right? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Should we just spell it out for that? Yeah. Um, so the those people are the dominant species on the planet, uh-huh. um, and the relationship is immediately. I don't know, fearful because when they show up, the other ones are are gone. Uh, the 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 Runa are just dis- disappear. Uh, so we don't know exactly what's going on. Uh, we we come across uh, Supari because they're hunting. Yeah. Um. And, like they have an old rifle of some sort. They they bring down an animal, but it's illegal poaching, and so there's a fight. In which Sandoz takes this dude out. Yeah, yeah, the, and it's kind of the introduction there into the third like hierarchical society, and that is, it happens really quickly when when uh, Janata is is introduced, uh, but that it, that world it happens over the course of like a chapter, but it's very complicated, uh, and I think Betsy, that's kind of where yeah. I started to I started to get a little bit confused as well. Um, but it certainly seems as though w- where you were born, whether you were the firstborn, secondborn, or thirdborn, kind of determines what your what your life will be. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Janata is is not a firstborn, so he is he does not he he can like make a living in terms of uh, in terms of sales and in terms of uh, mercantilism, but he can't ever have a wife and children and this is something that he wants to be able to do and so there's 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 even within yet this this third world that's now been created you still have hierarchy and you still have limitations that are on that are placed on this society and uh it it gets a little bit more complicated there but i was also really interested in kind of the intersections between uh between those different worlds the world of the humanity the world of uh the runa and then the world of john Ada, who kind of like comes in late into the story um but still but is kind of ends up being the Kind of the 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 thing that leads to the whole house of cards coming tumbling down in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. tragically. Yeah, <laughs> everyone's looking at me. I don't know. No, <laughs> I just I'm feeling like very aware of what grabs me in like good literature, and I think it's not sci-fi world building. <laughs> like or yeah. getting to know. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but I, I, you know, those are those kind of things. I was like, okay, but let's get back to Amelia, please, because I <laughs> want to fight. But you, you need this. You know, she does such a beautiful job of of creating, giving us some real context here. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, maybe that's a place I can go just for a minute at least. I don't know. I mean, obviously this is science fiction. I just don't know if that's fully what I would categorize it as. Um, and I mean that because, all, I mean, a buddy of mine, uh, Dr. Kyle Kaufman, professor of AI, um, I believe right now he's at the Citadel. Um, but anyway, what he said is good science fiction teaches you that a that human morality exists in a galaxy far, far away. You know, that's what Star Trek is fundamentally, that, you know, Captain Kirk is bringing humanity to uh, green women that he's trying to have sex with. But... 
this to me almost reads more like Thomas More's Utopia. Mm-hmm. You, you know, like this world exists. Now let's philosophically push those boundaries. This, 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 this to me is playing with that idea of sci-fi. Like, do our morals work? But it's almost not as interested in those questions as it is the philosophical world she's creating. And so, so in that context, it's it's in some ways different than any other sci-fi we've talked about so far. Um, and I don't know if necessarily you'd agree or not. Um, but for me, the science fiction part of it like Bessie was saying, kind of feels secondary to the fact that she's trying to make this argument about humanity. And I, I, I buy that. I find that very compelling, this kind of philosophical side of she is, as an anthropologist, asking these questions as to, as a human, where should we draw the line? What, what, what do we expect other cultures to do when we come across them? And the difference, you know, I mean, they make this point out, which, again, it shows the allegory of the anthropology. It comes from Alpha Centauri, which is actually relatively close to us. How convenient is that? It's, you know, it's like the difference between Europe and North America. It's so close. How did we miss this? Um, and yet it's galaxies away. Um, so I, I think that's kind of an interesting part of it, because, like you said, we recognize their culture. This, this, this is almost mercantilism. There's a structure here that Very we feudal. can recognize. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And yet we're, the Runa are the prey to the... <laughs> to uh, the, the more dominant species on the planet, which is interesting. And trying to think back to the 1500s and 1600s, I mean, a, a continent away is kind of almost the equivalent yeah. of this galaxy far, far away, right? And I think that as a result, what makes the science fiction and, and part of what makes the story work for me is the what it is that makes these characters that are encountered on these other planets more human and not what it is that makes them more alien. I think yeah. that what what really yeah. drives the story for me is the common thread of humanity mm-hmm. regardless of which planet it is that you're on. Well, um, and I think that that's, that that's part of what it is that makes it work for me. Yeah. How, yeah. Well, I well, gotta so. ask the question then, how would you define humanity then? Right. I had that same thought too. Like, do we call these people humans that are that they meet on the other planet? I mean, no. I mean, no, but I think it's a great, you made this great point that I think, yeah, it it challenges us to think, like, our one, the similarities between us as opposed to the differences. Um, But yeah, I mean, she gives us so much to think about, and it's, it's, um, I love that it's like all these different kinds of uh, stories that are put together in different ways. So we we get sci-fi, we get you know, there's a, I, there's a really the only dog ear that I put in the novel is the quote that I want to read, but What's it's just it? the theologian in me that yeah. um, it's so it's it's on uh, 191 uh, about halfway through the novel, and this is uh, Emilio thinking he says uh, or it's about Emilio he says for he could not feel God or approach God as a friend or speak to God with the easy familiarity of the devout or praise God with poetry and yet as he had grown older. The path he had started down, almost in ignorance, had begun to seem clearer to him. It became more apparent to him that he was truly called to walk this strange and difficult, this unnatural and unutterable path to God, which required not poetry or piety, but simple endurance and patience. Um, you know, that that kind of stuff is like, that That stops me, right? I mean, I had yeah. to like pause and, and in some right it's in the middle of the novel, it's, it's right there capturing who this priest is and why his 
faith is so compelling. Because when we talk about faith, people use that word all the time. It almost means so little because mm-hmm. it, people use it such different ways. And so, you know, does it mean that you become Orthodox or Catholic? Or does it mean that you are enduring and you try to proselytize to people on the street? You know, we get such a beautiful snapshot of this journey and him being yeah. open and curious and uh, and then uh, meeting people, humans, aliens as they are and, and trying to accept yeah, them as they and are. What's, what's really awesome about that passage that you just read is just how intentionally intangible that path to God is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that, that just the words like uh, the, the, that it's not poetry, right? That yeah. it's un, uh, that it's inutterable. Mm-hmm. And for a linguist like Emilio, oh, that's yeah. got to be so frustrating that mm-hmm. that a man who has dedicated his life half to God and half to language in some ways in the pursuit of God now is not able to, he's, he's kind of like left coming up short and yet still trying to endeavor towards that, that quest towards, towards God that he is kind of on throughout the entire, throughout the entire novel. And that, and and where it is that faith falls along those lines is, is just so powerful, particularly in that passage that you're in. So thank you. That's a great point because he, as a linguist, it's all about communicating, but yep. he can't speak to God that way. He can't find yeah. the words, can't relate. Yeah. And the end of that passage, it's a great passage. I'm glad you read that, Betsy, is the endurance and patience. Yeah. And once you get through the whole novel, you really see that's what Emilio is. And she recreates that in you as a reader, just yeah. like what happened to him and what's going on and why is this this way? Yeah. Um, so I was thinking as you guys were talking, maybe it's not humanity, but more about relationships. And mm-hmm. maybe that's what anthropology is. So the relationship with Emilio to God or these people to each other or even in the alien society, the relationships within that society yeah. that she's exploring, it's and it's such rich material to, to talk what, about. Yeah. What's coming up for me is an exploration of a mystery. If we try to use that phrase and see how oh. so many of the scenes and characters, and Emilio especially, is just exploring this mystery and, and really trying to stay curious and pay attention to what they're encountering, but not try to yeah. fully, or just be open to not being able to grasp it. Right? right. And that, to me, is such a big part of faith, a uh, faith that is resonant with me personally. So you know, it's, I'm biased, but I just, that, that exploration of a mystery feels really important. And, and really the, the novel is, is in some ways a mystery novel because we need to oh, find yeah. out what happened. Right. So we get that, but it's not a, it's not exactly like a, a crime novel. Let's get all the clues and figure out what happened. There is that, but then there's this deeper level of mystery too. That yeah. Is, I find really compelling. I, I got to ask him just one: is, in theology, is there an alien theology, or how do how do theologists <laughs> approach aliens, or should there ever be contact? Of what what happens? I mean, people got to be thinking about they this. They are. Right? There's yeah. some debate out there, um, and uh, you know, it's it's a there's lots of different answers, but you've got kind of this debate about if if and when we encounter aliens, do we baptize them? Do we tell them about Jesus? Do they have their own Jesus? Um, do they have their own... Was we, Jesus an alien? Well, <laughs> well, now we're really getting <laughs> to the good stuff. Here good. we go. All right, the podcast just started. All right. TV this summer, so I watch I History Channel. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> and so I think, you know, she doesn't enter into those conversations in a... Um, a way to like present us with a debate, but again, it's it's this exploring of a mystery, right? That that mystery is not a problem to be solved. That once we think we'll figure it out one day, but it's just 
looking, observing, well, being open to learning. And what an interesting word you just used there in mystery too, because that has such important connotations in the in the church and in Catholicism. the, the mm-hmm. in Catholicism with yeah. the the sacred mysteries and the inexplicable nature of that as well. I mean, I started MX off of that question, like. Are there aliens, or do you believe that there are aliens, and what would it mean oh, to us? Oh, back to the important stuff. We're not yeah. talking about mystery anymore. We're back to aliens. No, it is a mystery because, like, that—that's that, the fundamental idea. Like, I mean, you know, you could do the whole Carlin thing, like, well, when we don't have an answer, we just say it's a mystery. Uh, but fundamentally, it is. How do we deal with this? And something we didn't really get into. Um, their mission is mostly secret. You know, very like secret, right? Yeah. Well, except for the other Jesuits who are funding right. us, but within the society, yeah. Um, which is very Catholic and very Jesuit. Uh, <laughs> oh. It is. It is. Yes, you're right. You're exactly right. But I think, but that's why that's another word that like gets used in this in so many different ways. Yeah. Sorry, I just cut you off. No, you're no, doing great. You're totally fine. I was, <laughs> I was just, but that means that they're suffering in silence. Yeah. Right. Like yep. it's not like he, there was, um, if you've ever seen the movie Contact or read the book Contact, where there's a global effort and that they 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 figure out the answers to everything, or Carl Sagan with uh, Voyager two. Mm-hmm. Sending out this message from humanity. No, no, it's just these this handful of people who represent the first alien species we've ever seen, and for them also, best we can tell, the first alien species they've come in contact with. Mm-hmm. Um, and they get a little bit into the ego of that as well. But you know, it happened the same way in the past, and that's why I bring up the question of it all uh, in class. But you know, because again, Columbus was expecting to find what the, the Polo Brothers had. That that's the answer. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I, and I, I think that that's part of the part of why I think it's important that it's not just Emilio who's on this mission, though. Mm-hmm. That you have Jimmy, who is a man of science, mm-hmm. and you have Anne, who is very much she she claims during one of the early during one of the early uh, dinner scenes, I believe that she doesn't believe in God. Oh yeah, and yeah. so it's and it's she's she a and doctor, George, we should say. George, she's and George too, right. who's always like a problem solver, right? right. He's right. like this engineer, isn't he? And he's yes, always like, yeah. how can I fix it? And so and so this becomes so much more than just a conversion story, which ultimately that conversion fails. They the, the the conversion of this of this planet and these cultures, it results in first a massacre and then no mm. no conversion of uh, of any sort of belief from the from the um, from the Janata. Mm-hmm. It's so you, you can you can look at that as kind of like a, a, a failed conversion, but at the same mm-hmm. time the it's not just a conversion story and yeah. i think that that's it's it's very intentional and i think that it's important that it's not just jesuits that are on this that are on this mission that it's that it's that it's a more human mission than perhaps just a jesuit mission if that makes sense yeah or a, uh, an exploration that humans are on and open to whatever they encounter right. or stumbling through that in all their different ways um but i, I just love that um we have like you said Anne and George and Jimmy and do we ever learn Sophia's faith? She's not religious either, is she? She's well, she's, she's Jewish. Jewish. Oh yeah, okay, by birth, okay, okay. Yeah. But Cultural, but really active. No, well, she wasn't until her, she's freed right before she goes, and then she goes to the the Holy Land. There's a scene with her in Jerusalem, and she goes uh, to the Wailing Wall. Forgotten about that. Gosh. Um, which is supposed to be for us a good juxtaposition because uh, she's doing these things in a very ancient world. But she's as alien to it hmm. as she's about to be in a foreign place. So mm-hmm. she's trying to find a community which doesn't she doesn't belong to, which I mean 
you know, I have a lot of Jewish friends here in the States. It's kind of something that they all deal with. They have the birthright trip because they're ethnically Jewish, they're culturally Jewish, they're religiously Jewish, but there's a specific place you're supposed to go that they've never been before. So that's 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 her voyage as well. That's her, her personal journey. I am just now realizing that so much of the novel is about othering and us, like in-group, oh, out-group, oh, us and sure. them, yeah. and, and then um, and the contrast there. But what do we make of the title? Let's talk about the title. Let's talk about it. So it comes from, you said it comes from Matthew. Matthew. Here's my question, and I should know this because I teach Christian scriptures at the school, <laughs> but is this passage about the sparrow uh this is like who who can add one minute up to their life by worrying notice the sparrows notice the lilies of the field i know it's in matthew mm-hmm. is it in other gospels and the reason i ask is because you know theologians say like the the stories and the words and phrases that are in more gospels is more evidence that jesus might have actually said them. right mm-hmm. um and so that's kind of the i think that's the reference here right is yeah. the, the sparrow uh, but not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. Oh no, I got the I got the reference wrong. Okay. No, I, th- I think it's the, the same verse. One? It's earlier in the okay. verse. Okay. Okay. Uh, this uh, for those of you curious, Matthew chapter 10 verses 29 through 31. Um, I believe this is only in Matthew. Yeah, I, I imagine most of our listeners are from the, from the school, but in case you aren't, uh, historically it's considered that Mark came first. And then Luke and Matthew based themselves off of Mark expounding on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and some believe that there was even a what they call the Gospel of Q or the Q yeah. Gospel, mm-hmm. which is a series of quotations believed to be said by Jesus, but was clearly not av- available to the Marcine writer, um, but then added to Matthew and Luke. Um, and then John was way out doing his own thing yeah <laughs> yeah almost none of the stories line up um but that that's what she was kind of getting at which it is, is in luke it as is well. in luke just Matthew not the luke. full quote, quote not in, in mark um so it's a q quote yeah right exactly yeah different q okay um but yeah i i like this idea because he's supposed to be almost canonizer uh uh, saintly. Mm-hmm. I'll just say saintly. Mm-hmm. Um, and he comes back a broken man. And we, we should kind of describe mm-hmm. another ongoing thing is his hands. Um, yeah, when he comes um, back in 2060, 2059. Right. Um, so I described this earlier. It's kind of like Chinese women having their foot bound. It's supposed to make them almost... They now they physically can't work, so they're living a life of of leisure or to be looked at. And um, what it does, it, the way I understood it, is they tried to lengthen his hands and fingers, like cutting oh, yeah. the tendons or something. Yeah. Like yeah, and it's an incredibly painful process. But the the alien species don't comprehend it in the same way. Mm-hmm. It literally kills his buddy, Mark. Yeah, Mark. ends up dying as a result. Um, and for him, as he comes back, uh, they describe him almost like fetal, unable to function, and they've created these hand braces to help him move, which at first, in kind of, um, you know, like he's kind of punishing himself, they don't fit well. Mm. Um, they eventually... Like flagellation. Get, yeah, right, self-flagellation, yeah. thank you. See, this is why we work well together. He can yeah. <laughs> help me think what I'm trying to think. But, but eventually they get replaced with something better. Um, and then he's more open to sharing his experience, mm. um, as though his... He has pain that needs to be relieved. But didn't he? He, he willingly underwent this, right? Because it he seems sort like of it. a misunderstanding. He thought it was an honor or a way to honor yes. and bond yeah. with them, and then 
he realized this wasn't probably a wise decision. Yeah. <laughs> it's the linguistic thing he gets to, because right. he's like, oh, they asked me this in this way, and I should have... <sighs> he, I mean, this gets really into the weeds, but he realizes there's a form... They don't have, like, tenses the way we do. Things are either things that you can physically see or things you can't, <laughs> which he thinks is a religious metaphor, because that's why he has such a hard time explaining God, because he believes God is there, but you can't see him, which to them is a completely foreign concept. Though this misunderstanding is what essentially gets him asked to be tortured, which is a very, you know, it's a very martyrdom kind of thing. I'm trying to explain to you something which you cannot grasp, and therefore I must be punished because of it. Mm. And then, I don't know, do we want to give away what happens to him? Or? If you want to read this and not get spoiled, <laughs> stop now. We're going to end this episode with the end of this book. Um, but she leaves it till the very end. Very like, yeah, end. it's so, the last then, 20 like, pages before anything yeah. comes out in his sort of confession, right? Like he's confessing, or one of the other Jesuits is his yeah. confessor, trying to get the story out of him because they think that he's guilty of something like right. of some crime and they're trying to bring him to justice, get him to confess the crime. Yeah. Sure. And we learn it's much more complicated yeah. than that. Yeah. yeah. But effectively he becomes like a concubine. He does. Yeah. yeah. And horrible, horrible things. Yeah. In yeah. horrible conditions. Yeah. And I mean, we find out that like the UN found him in a brothel, which is again, yeah. a weird sentence I just put together. Yeah. <laughs> um, Make sure to put the UN found the priest in the brothel. Make sure you yeah, 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 you got you got you got to yeah. Really you have make to it. use proper nouns <laughs> yeah. here. You can't yeah. you can't you play do. the pronoun game yeah. when you're using yeah. such dangerous sentences. <laughs> um, but it turns out that after they end up in this city, we don't even know how important the city is because they don't know, so right. they don't know. Um, they're introduced to this uh, famous poet who was introduced earlier, kind of secondarily, and. Um, he enters their menagerie like very realistically like he has all these people around him all the time like you said he gets abused as a concubine um but it's here where all the ritual finger lengthening takes place uh his friend dies and so he is in you know very much this it's not only a horrible situation but again if you've read any of these modernisms it it seems like someone who gets welcomed into the palace (laughs) of a foreign prince and they're just destroyed um and the poet is the source of the song right right initially. Yeah. so that's sort of that the sad irony though what drew them there is what ended up yeah being his demise and then and then emilio has that moment right before like his entire world comes comes crashing down when he thinks that everything that he's been working towards is about to come to fruition, that he's meeting the person who created this beautiful song that has sent him on this journey. It's almost like he's about to see God. The calling of God. And, yeah. and then when things turn on the drop of a hat, it just, you you as the reader kind of like feel his world coming crumbling down too. And it's this almost kind of like tragic fall for, for Emilio. And it's what leads to his his understandably his deep questioning of faith during his return and then in in the year 2060 when he's back on earth this is this is what it's been all about is this complete reversal of that that tragic moment when he thought that all of his his uh hard work in 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 this new world that he's encountered it all comes crumbling down well and we should say before this the whole time he believes that you know, God has put him in the right place at the right time because 
He happens to be at the dinner. He happens to be there when they need. And he also happens to be the perfect person for the job, being this linguist who's very good at what he does. And so, like, the whole time he's like, you know, God has put me here, which is why at the end, it's not that he doesn't believe God exists necessarily. He's mad at God. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a that's a really good distinction. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you said that. Because again, like w- w- we've talked about people and their various religious backgrounds here, but he 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 is furious. Um, and that's interesting because you you talked about the confession scene, and it is one of the it's one of the best like he throws the table across the room he shatters the table and these people are shocked nay shocked and he's talking to the head of his order and he's spitting blue fire here and then he admits to everything and you know they leave and he comes back and you know he he thanks him for addressing it and it's not really a thank you as much as it is I feel that I should have done this but it, it, it's it's very deftly done I'll put it that oh, way it's weird one of the best passages I've read in a while, just as far as emotionally evocative. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. really powerful. Yeah. And the, the, that catharsis, you can you can almost feel it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, there's a sequel which I am now compelled to read, but it doesn't feel at the end like the Jesuits are going to get back on the horse mm-hmm. and everything will be fine. It feels like Sandoz might be doing better by the end, but it doesn't feel like everything wrapped up in a nice little package. It's very practical in that way. Yeah. Um, it's very it's it's very realistic writing in that aspect. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think I'm just struck by the feelings I had as we were reading. I mean, it, it's I had to put the book down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. I, it was really powerful. Yeah, um, I agree. It uh, so it's it's worth it, you know, especially if you're reading this book and you um, there are parts of it that don't kind of grab you. It's worth to endure in order to get to the end. Again, I think I skipped so I'd not skipped, but was okay with not getting all the details of all the sci-fi worlds, and and I think it paid off. So for people who are curious about the novel, 10 out of 10 for me. <laughs> now, would you teach it, Betsy? That or is a great you question. Could you see yourself teaching it or finding it somewhere in you your know, curriculum or some class? There is part of me, like I said, that is, I mean, I just love this intersection between faith and, and art, faith and literature. Um, but there's so many mature, and I, I say mature themes, and I mean there's sex in it, which... You know, there's, it's not salacious. There's, and, no, yeah. it's not. Right. It's not. Um, but it's. It is certainly intense, though. It's and intense. There are, and it and it gets dark, and it gets. Um, so I, I I understand what you're saying. Where it would be, I would almost be a little bit weary to to teach it because of uh, because of how, gosh, because of how real it gets, for lack of a better word. It gets it gets it gets very uh, it gets very intense. And I wanted to use the word mature in reference to the sex, but I think also it's mature in terms of faith in terms of you know you think like all these things are happening to these characters and they're in the second or they're in this the stage of life that's you know jimmy's what in his 20s do we right. think yeah so, yeah, I'd he's, say so he's our youngest character and so part of me wonders how impactful it would be to the high school mind you know if we're looking for uh, literature that's gonna uh be a you know help us with this inner help us understand this intersection but um yeah, I, I guess I feel like I want to encourage everyone I know to read it. <laughs> oh, good. I'll throw this out there. English teachers, you two. How many pages do you guys assign in a night, would you say? And, Depending and, and, on the text. Yeah. We try to aim, we were talking about this the other day, like 20 to 30 minutes max. Yeah, yeah. I, I think... 20 to 30 minutes, uh, which, and that could be, depending on the book, right. 20 minutes of 
reading To Kill a Mockingbird is very different than 20 minutes of reading Model Christian Charity, right? So I think that, that depending on the text, it can definitely make a big difference. Yeah. Okay. So, ask, Nick? well, okay, so 60 times, let's say... Oh, I love doing math, like, right here on a podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. Dangerous, dangerous. How could I have a math? Dangerous, but... Right, so we're stopping the podcast. We're going to go to our Get calculators. Yeah. Then we're back. Yeah. Okay, so, Betsy, at that rate, this book is 400 pages. Right. If We'll come back to you. You and I can do a supplement. I want you to write me a Catholic fiction course oh. and you get to pick four books okay because that that's kind of, it's something we've talked about before with mm-hmm. you know with wise blood but and the reason I, I'm, I'm doing this I'm not trying to put you on the spot at the end of this season I love being put on the spot but it's just <laughs> I don't know where this would fit into a curriculum I don't but either. at the same time I like the idea of teaching this because yeah. it's it's a compelling book it's it also very much is of its time of, of the late 90s early 2000s and so I because there is a sense of optimism there's not a sniff of 9/11 everything is horrible all the time of it or gritty realism in it it still has this human like humanism which we lacked for about 15 years there in everything we wrote um, so I, I kind of I like that about this too. Um, Mike or Mike, would you put this in your curriculum? Um, I think yes. I think that, that that it's 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 definitely worthwhile, and I think that it approaches faith, Bessie, as you were saying before, in a way that um, I think is really really interesting. I almost think that it would need to be in right. the capacity of like a uh, a. Theology and literature. A, a theology and language and and like theology and literature type of a course, but um, within those within those parameters, I could definitely see it being taught. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I almost want to teach it just as an experiment to see how kids react or yeah. see what they would get out I'll of it. Because yeah, because I don't know if they'll relate as well as right. someone you know who's older or uh, or what they would say or pick up on, but. Um, I would think it's engaging enough that they would get hooked and and be curious about. And like most things, you get the right kids or the right group, and this could be an amazing book and really transformative for them. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'd like to work it in some – my mind goes to like doing a book circle and having the right kids. But then in the – if they aren't the right kids, it could just be like, oh, they would not land it's, well. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking now about Slaughterhouse Five, and the there's, there's definitely that same kind of science fictiony type element to it. There's also that same aspect of, uh, of tragedy, and there's that aspect of humanity that's there as well. Um, and I did read Slaughterhouse Five when I was in, when I was in high school, and it was, it was part of a class, and we approached it. Looking at that trauma and looking at that, uh, looking at the tragedy that's kind of in in part of that story as well. But uh, but yeah, I guess I guess Mike, you're right. I think that it it would be, I I wouldn't feel comfortable kind of just throwing it at the students and letting them and letting them kind of make their way through it on their own in kind of like a book circle type way. But I do think if it's approached the right way within the right context, I think it could be done well and I think it could be done right. Yeah. Yeah. So term three tragedy books. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> term three tragedies. Yeah. Uh, term three is already kind of a tragedy, right? Because you're just trying to get to the end. Yes. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, if we're talking about the great Catholic, best Catholic novels that I'd recommend, keep listening to the podcast because yeah. we've got one of my favorites coming up because it's it's just, I and mean, this is on it for sure. I'm just yeah. not 
I'm not sure if uh, yeah. kids and, can make it, but um, I, I, I am making a note of letting our audience know uh, Betsy will be back uh, talking about John Kennedy O'Toole's A Confederacy of Dunces later. I got to see event. the statue in New Orleans this <laughs> summer. It was amazing. Uh, of Ignatius? Yes, oh, Jay no Riley. Have... He's a little shorter than I thought. In my head, he was a lot taller, a lot bigger. I just, I imagine he's someone who has to uh, mansplain manspreading as he takes up half a bus seat. At least, yeah. Um, His valve is closing. you got to be careful. <laughs> I love it. Um, anyway, uh, but that's not next. Uh, for those of you who are following along with us, which uh, I'll get the, into that in a second, but uh, we're doing a October, obviously, is right around the corner, and we're going to do Frankenstein, followed by a modern retelling of it in Jurassic... Is it Frankenstein? Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Mary Shelley's... We're doing the epistolary novel Mary Frankenstein, uh, Frankenstein, uh, followed by, uh, in honor of one of the worst movies I've seen this year, uh, no. Jurassic Park. Oh. Uh, oh, that's so bad. Uh, we're doing so Michael so Crichton's Jurassic Park um, as the second book in uh, October. And so, thank you for listening. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Thank you, Betsy, for coming. Yeah, yeah thank you, Betsy. Thanks for having me, all. This has been fun. Yeah, thank you, guys. Thanks, Appreciate it. And thank you, Mike Carroll. And I also want to just toss out here, uh, thanks to uh, Maris for... If, if this sounds any different, it's because I put up sound tiles very poorly, but we have sound tiles in here, and they bought us a new computer, so it might actually tell. sound professional. They can in tell. the school colors, yeah. In the school colors, yes. Yeah. Um, Great for a podcast medium. Yes. Let's describe the room a little more. This is perfect. It's blue and gold, <laughs> and there's a flag at the back. Um, to hide a mistake I made. So, uh, anyway, uh, so thank you guys for listening, and if you're hearing about this because you're on faculty here at Marist, uh, and it's in the eighth period, which it is, I just checked, uh, thank you for supporting supporting us as, uh, you know, members of your faculty. And thanks for your encouragement, guys. Uh, bye. That's it. That was so fun. Required Reading is a product of Maris Podcasting and Dude Letter Podcasting. It is hosted by Nick Hoffman and co-hosted by Mike Burns and Mike Carroll. It is edited and produced by Nick Hoffman. The theme is Sands by Davis Burns. The opinions expressed are opinions of the hosts and the guests, but not of Marist School. All rights reserved. Thanks.